Well, good morning again. Um, please open your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. We've already found out that today is Father's Day. And uh, so I thought it appropriate to speak on a key text in the Scriptures that addresses the relationship of children to parents and in particular of fathers to their children. And so the message title for this morning is The Spirit-Filled Family. So let's begin our time by reading Ephesians chapter 6 and we're going to read the first four verses. Apostle Paul writes this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now there is much in this short passage and it's filled with significant responsibility for both children and for fathers. Uh, it is a, a, a passage that is relevant to us all, uh, no matter where we are in life. We are all children of a father and for those of us who are fathers, uh, we are always fathers, um, no matter how old our children are. But to understand what Paul says in our, in our passage of focus, it's necessary to see it within its context. So we're going to start by uh, looking at a wide angle focus and then we're going to begin to zoom back in. So if we just take the book of Ephesians itself, the Apostle Paul structures the book with two main actions. The first action is to revere God. We are to have reverence to God for what he has done for his people in Christ Jesus. This basically encaptures chapters 1 to 3. In chapter 1, verse 3, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So this is speaking of the believer's salvation, the joy that we have in our salvation, the praise that we are to give to God for his salvation and to revere him for that. And this is all totally the work of God. Uh, the second uh, action that we have is, is a call to respond to God, a response to God for what he has done for his people in Christ Jesus. This, again, is basically chapters 4 through to 6. Paul begins, chapter 4, verse 1, saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to work in a manner worthy of the calling, sorry, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so this is speaking about the believer's sanctification, which believers are to participate in through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So, The truth of God informs his people and and leads to worship and then right beliefs lead into right behaviour. One day we will be transformed in glory, both in body and spirit, uh, to be like Christ. And from the moment God saves us into his family, each day is a step towards that final glory. The metaphor of walking is used throughout the letter, but significantly in the second half. 
And it's picked up clearly in chapter 5, verse 15, where Paul states this. He says, look carefully then how you walk. And then immediately he provides three contrasting actions to show what he means by that. So in Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 16, he says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So don't walk as unwise, walk wisely. In verse 17, he says, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So don't walk with foolishness, but with understanding. And then in verse 18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Let the right thing fill us. The mention of the Holy Spirit in verse 18 then undergirds all the discussion for the rest of the book. In verses 19 to 21, Paul lists a number of things that are the result of the Spirit's work in the believer's life. And they can be summarized as as singing praise to the Lord, as having satisfaction in the Lord, being thankful for all things that he gives. And by exhibiting submission uh, to those that God has set in place for our good. Again, it's this this mention of this last aspect that is expanded further. Verse one, verse 21, Paul says that being filled with the Spirit means submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now the word submit always, always means to arrange under, or more particularly, to make oneself subordinate to the authority of a higher power. The phrase one another Uh, depends on the context as to whether it's a reciprocal action or not. For example, in Galatians 6 verse 2, we are told to bear one another's burdens. Because this doesn't mean that everyone should just exchange burdens with each other, only that some who are more able should help bear the burdens of those who are less able. So what we find here in in Ephesians 5.21 is that part of being filled by the Holy Spirit is living our lives in submission to appropriate authorities. That is, those that God has established for the blessing of his people. And so Paul gives three illustrations of this, where it might occur. In marriage, in the family, and then in the workplace. However, as we'll see in a moment, there's there's nothing at all in these texts that leave room for attitudes of dictatorship or tyranny. Nothing at all. A husband's headship is to be characterised by sacrificial service following the example of Christ Jesus. A father's authority is not to leave their children exasperated. Fathers are not allowed to act however they wish. A master's power over his worker is to be done in the recognition that both are answerable to God. So this brings us to our text for this morning. Both children and fathers have a responsibility before God in the way that they interact with each other. So let's start by looking at the divine instruction to children. Let me read verses 1 to 3 again. (coughs) Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, 
This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now the word Paul uses here for children is a general term. The word can be used for children of any age and it refers primarily to the the relationship that the child has to the parent rather than the actual age of the child. For example, Paul uses the same word in, in 1 Timothy 5 verse 4 when he writes, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now clearly, the children in this instance are at an age where they can assist their widowed mother financially. And so for our passage in Ephesians, we shouldn't think that, that once a child reaches a certain age, that there's, there's no longer a divine imperative to honour their parents. Get to a certain age, we don't have to do that anymore. No, of course not. Even though the, the call to honour parents will certainly be applied differently when we get older, it still applies. I mean, how we, we honour our parents when we leave home can be seen through things like having a, a respectful attitude towards them or, or caring for them in their old age. But given the inclusion of verse 4 with the mention of discipline and instruction, it seems clear that the major focus in the Ephesian context is on children who are in the process of learning and growing, those still under uh, the leadership of their parents. To those children who are still under the direct care and responsibility of their parents, the call is for them to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now let's just note immediately that Paul expects the children, he expects from them the same level of obedience, the same level of honour to be given to both parents, the child's father and the child's mother. Paul recognises the enormous role that mothers have. When writing his second letter to his young protege Timothy, he, he speaks of the work of the women in Timothy's life. He says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And then later in 2 Timothy in chapter 3 verses 14 to 15, he again speaks of Timothy's childhood, saying this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, Paul was instrumental in teaching Timothy, but Paul was not starting with a blank canvas. He had much work. He had, sorry, he had much to work with given the devotion of Timothy's mother and his grandmother. But the call to obedience to both parents is not a new call either. It was written into the Ten Commandments of which Paul quotes from. Think also of King Solomon's words in Proverbs 1, verses 8 to 9, where we read, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. So what does it mean for a child to obey their parents? The word obedience means to do what one is told. This is 
different to what's said in chapter 5 regarding a wife's submission to her husband. There, the grammar points to a voluntary submission, whereas for children, it meant absolute obedience. So to put that simply, mothers and fathers are to expect their children to obey, whereas husbands cannot have the same expectation regarding their wives. It doesn't work the same. But even for the children, there are some provisions given to show that their obedience to their parents is to be a thoughtful obedience. If we bring in the parallel text of Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, this becomes clearer. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So with this and the verse in Ephesians, there are two big issues resolved. So in Colossians, Paul says that children are to obey their parents in everything. So is there any limitation to the, to the scope of their obedience? No. It is to be a comprehensive obedience. The parents have responsibility over all areas of the child's life. But then in Ephesians 6 verse 1, we're told that children are to obey their parents in the Lord. And so while the scope of obedience is unlimited, the standard of obedience is not. There is to be a comprehensive obedience, but it's also to be a considered obedience. What do I mean by this? That It means that if a parent asks or commands a child to do something that is in disobedience to the Lord, then the child has a responsibility to the Lord first and foremost. This consideration comes about when we reflect upon the Christian's obedience to the government. In Romans 13 verse 1, Paul writes these words. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, does that mean Christians are to obey the law if uh, obeying the law they are sinning against God? Well, no, of course not. The precedent for this is, is established by the actions of the apostles Peter and John. In Acts 4, they were dragged before the ruling Jewish council for preaching the gospel. And we read in chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, So they, that's the the Jewish leaders, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, well, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It is of utmost importance for Christians of any age to obey the Lord overall no matter what consequences may befall us. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 10, verse 28. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But then listen as Matthew records Jesus' Jesus' words even further in verse 29 to 31. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. The Lord knows those who are his. And he is right there with them through whatever trials they may be forced to endure for the sake of Christ. 
Now, in considering obedience to God, it seems clear, however, that on the most basic level, it is a child's obedience to their parents that exhibits their obedience to God. Right? It's actually part of the discipleship process. It is calling children to recognise that obedience to their parents is a significant area in which they show their obedience to the Lord. When this letter was read out in the churches, uh, the children would have also heard how God is calling them to live. And it shows that their obedience is to be thoughtful and considered. Paul is actually giving them responsibility. He's treating them as responsible people within the church. It's uplifting their status because he's giving them a responsibility under God to obey those whom God has put in place. Elsewhere in scripture, we see that obedience to parents is a clear indication of growing as a follower of Jesus. Firstly, it's following the example of Christ Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 2 verse 51, we learn of the the 12-year-old Jesus' relationship with his parents. In Luke 2.51, we read, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus exemplified what it is to honour and obey one's parents. In contrast, we see that obedience to parents is a sign, sorry, disobedience to parents is a sign of sinfulness. In Romans 1 verse 30, disobedience to parents is listed among other things, other sins such as gossip and slander and murder and envy as those things that God gives a faithless society over to. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 2, we read this. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and the list just goes on for three more verses. And then in verse 5, it ends with Paul simply saying, avoid such people. Paul says in Ephesians that a child's obedience to their parents is right. And then in Colossians, he says that it pleases the Lord. It's therefore an act of righteousness and of godliness. See, there is far more to obedience than simply listening to the parents. For in doing so, a child is showing his obedience moreover to God. Now, in verse 2, the benefits of obedience are drawn out further. To begin with, obedience not only brings honour to the Lord, but it honours those whom God has divinely placed in a position of authority. And to honour means to, to revere or hold in high esteem. We are called as Christians to honour those whom God has set in place for his glory and for his good, whether that be in marriage, in church, in society, or in this instance, the family. And as we've already seen, the honour is to be given to both parents. Now, Paul here is quoting from the fifth commandment. So again, we see that this is not something new. However, what is new is the fact that Paul is not quoting the Old Testament because it's somehow still binding upon Christians, but because this commandment originally given to Israel is an exemplary expression of what it means 
to love. Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament law so that believers are no longer under the law of Moses, but under the law of Christ. Now, we looked at this in depth uh, when we studied uh, the Sabbath and the Lord's Day earlier in the year. The law of Christ is a, is a phrase that's mentioned in Galatians 6, verse 2. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. And essentially, it refers to all that is taught or endorsed by Christ and his apostles. By looking through the lens of Christ, we begin to see what parts of the Old Testament are still binding and what are types and shadows for things to come. Again, the things that are binding are not so because we are under the law of Moses, but because they express clearly what it means to be in Christ. This is the reason why, on the one hand, we must still honour our parents. But on the other hand, we don't have to avoid shellfish, which is why I'm going to enjoy... What is it? Uh, Surf and turf for dinner tonight, for Father's Day. In Romans 13, verse 10, Paul writes, Love does no wrong to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The law of Christ finds expression in love for God and love for neighbour. So, obedience to parents will bring blessing to the parents, but it will also bring blessing to the child. Verse 3 shows this clearly. Honour your father and mother. Why? That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, we need to see that Paul has cut short the quote from Moses in order to, to universalise this promise. See, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, Moses had said this, Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul has trimmed down that quote to show that the blessing that comes from giving honour to one's parents is not just limited to life in the promised land that God was giving to Israel at that time. It's a universal promise now. Of course, we immediately recognise that there are practical exceptions to receiving this blessing. Sometimes the lives of honourable and faithful children are tragically cut short by parents who have sinned badly or by the sins of others, by the fact of living in a sinful world. Sometimes children who do not honour their parents seem to live blessed lives as well. But these realities do not escape the attention of the biblical writers. In Psalm 73, the greatest psalm to read if ever you attempted to see the uh, to be sucked into the, the blessings of this world rather than Christ. Psalm 73, Asaph, he speaks of a time when he almost turned his back on God. In verses 2 and 3 he wrote this, But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw all these people who cared not a quiver about God but they were experiencing all this blessing. And he thought, well, why am I trying so hard here with God? But then what happened when he saw things from God's perspective? He recognised that God 
will ultimately punish the faithless. But the righteous, well, they can echo Asaph's words in verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So we are to trust in the Lord and do good. And the good for children is that they are to obey their parents in the Lord. Well, this leads us to Paul's instructions to fathers in verse 4. Let me read that again. It says this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The first question to ask is, why does Paul single out the fathers here uh, rather than speaking of both parents, especially since the children are to obey both parents? Well, the answer is certainly not that he thinks less of mothers than he does of fathers. We've already seen his comments about Timothy's mother and grandmother. Moreover, only last week, we, in our study of Titus chapter 2, we saw that an aspect of godliness for younger married women is to be working at home, which means their priority was looking after their household, bringing up their children rightly. So why fathers only? Well, I see at least two scriptural reasons for specifying the father's role. And the first reason is the headship of the husband. In verse, uh, in chapter 5, verse 23, Paul writes this. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. So Christ exercises authority over the church, and the husband's role is to echo this in the marriage. And while the wife's work is primarily focused on the home, nevertheless, the ultimate responsibility of the family falls upon the husband. So if the children are to obey the parents and within the marriage there is a divinely ordained headship, then it makes sense that comments would be directed towards the head. Now under this same heading, we would also ask how the husband is to exercise his authority as head. And the answer is seen in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It is sacrificial, servant-hearted leadership. Now this relates directly to the marriage, but by extension, it should characterize the way a man leads his family. The second reason for specifying the father's role is the fatherhood of God. Now God is spirit and therefore he doesn't have a specific gender, but he reveals himself through scripture in ways that we can understand. And we don't refer to God as it. Um, we don't refer, we, sorry, we do refer to him as he or him. And more specifically, we refer to the triune God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're not at liberty to refer to God in ways that he has not said. That's why we reject rightly any teaching uh, that seeks to address God with the title of mother uh, or the pronouns she or her. Eight times in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul speaks of the fatherhood of God. And of particular note is what he says in chapter 3. He says this in verses 14 to 15. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And so God is the creator of all people. 
He's the father of all people in the sense that he has created all people. Now we need to be careful in understanding this verse because while all people are his children by creation, only those who by the grace of God have been enabled to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, only those are truly made children of God. See, without faith in Christ, then the fact that all people are God's creations is not good news in and of itself. Because it simply means that since they're created by God, they're answerable to God and he will judge them if they do not repent. The verse is affirming God's sovereignty over all things. And even the basic structure of the family owes its existence to God itself, himself. So when Paul comes to chapter 6, he speaks and just speaks directly about the fathers, uh, about their role in the family. They are to recognise the responsibility that God has set before them. And earthly fathers are to reflect the actions of the heavenly father. See, as God cares for his household, so dads are to care for the household that God has blessed them with. Now, when we look at the instruction to fathers, we see there is a negative aspect and a positive aspect. It says, don't do this, but do this. So, he begins, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't do this. Don't provoke your children to anger. Earlier in the letter, Paul has already addressed the issue of anger. Chapter 4, verse 26 to 27, he said this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. See, not all anger is sin. Righteous anger is a response to things that are against God, such as anger at seeing injustice or immorality or ungodliness. But we must be careful that it is never expressed sinfully. And one of the means of ensuring This is to see that the issue is dealt with properly before bitterness is able to take root. Hence the next mention of anger in verse 31 where Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. This verse is about the anger that stems from ungodly motives. And it's accompanied by other sinful traits that are to have no place in the Christian's life. And if they do arise, then through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the believer is to repent and to seek godliness once more in the desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. So anger is not always bad, but it must always be dealt with appropriately and in a timely fashion, lest the devil get a foothold in the believer's life. So when we come to chapter 6, Paul tells Christian fathers not to provoke their children to anger. And the type of anger here is very much in the negative sense. To provoke means to really push someone's buttons, to really get to them in an up-close and personal way. Paul is exhorting fathers to avoid acting in any manner that leads their children uh, to respond sinfully. Now, Even when fathers are are carrying out their parenting role with godliness, sometimes children are just going to get angry and sin anyway. 
I mean, this happens in all spheres of life. For even though believers, uh, <coughs> even though we've been declared justified, until we reach glory at Christ's return, we are nevertheless still sinners. And, and in us, there's always a, a balking, a, a recoiling, a hesitation to submit to any divinely established authority that brings a curb on our own desires for complete autonomy. We all want to be king, whether that's in the church, in the home, in society. So we shouldn't be surprised when our little tackers decide they too want to be kings and queens of the household. However, the command for fathers is that their own sinfulness is not to be the cause of their children's anger. There are any number of ways that fathers can say or do things that cause their children to respond in sinful anger. And uh, let me just quote from one commentator. He basically covers it. He says this, This involves avoiding attitudes, words and actions which would drive a child to angry exasperation or resentment and thus rules out excessively severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. That pretty much covers it. So fathers are not to provoke their children to anger, but rather in a positive sense, they are tasked with helping their children to grow in godliness. Instead of provoking their children anger, fathers are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers are to to nourish their children to maturity and more specifically, maturity in the Lord. Proverbs 22 verse 6 is a well-known proverb which states this, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, majority of interpreters take this as a general promise to parents that their hard work of teaching their children will eventually pay off. But what about the faithful parent whose children turn away from the Lord? For them, this passage can cut to the heart. The problem, however, is not with this verse, but in the way that it's been translated and in the way it's been interpreted. You see, it literally reads, train a child in his way, And when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's not about training a child in the right way, but allowing a child to continue in his own way. And so it's not a promise. It's a warning. It's a warning that if children are not taught to have mature, godly attitudes and behaviours, then they will carry their sinful immaturity through to adulthood. That's where the promise lies. And so it is imperative to fathers to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So let's look at the first word, discipline. It's translated in 2 Timothy 3.16 as training. And there, we all know this verse, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Fathers are called to build up their children in their understanding of God, and of the gospel, godliness. And this happens through prayer, through teaching the children the scriptures, through being a godly example for them, 
Showing them what it's like to, to live as a Christian in this world. Showing them how men are to treat women in the way that he loves their child's mother. It means teaching them how to work through issues in a godly fashion. It means teaching them about grace and forgiveness and kindness and mercy. But discipline also includes correction of wrongdoing, which entails at times physical discipline. Proverbs 13 verse 24 is another well-known proverb which states, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. In an article entitled, Discipline in the Book of Proverbs to Spank or Not to Spank. It's going to get your attention, isn't it? Evangelical scholar Paul Wegner, he noted eight different levels of discipline in the book of Proverbs, ranging from encouraging right behaviour through to the death penalty. Of course, this last one is not an option for parents. Uh, That's only part of the governmental sphere, just in case you're wondering. Now, he summarised all of his work by saying this. As a general principle, all children need some form of discipline, though not all may need corporal punishment. Wise parents use the least amount of punishment necessary to curb improper behaviour. Now, the article is certainly worth a read if you want to get a better understanding of what Scripture teaches on this matter. There is much hesitation in today's culture about disciplining children. But as with all things... It is not the culture that should inform our actions, but the scriptures. And scriptures inform us that discipline is a necessary facet of training children to be godly. It's important to learn at a young age that actions have consequences. Because if children don't learn that lesson when they're young, they will not be prepared for this when they grow up. Moreover, as as Christians, we understand that as God's children, we are disciplined by our Heavenly Father. And in this, we see that discipline is absolutely an act of love. Just turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll see this clearly. (coughs) The writer declares, Hebrews chapter 12 from verse 4, He says this, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And he then uh, goes on to compare the discipline of earthly fathers to the heavenly father. And when he says from verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. So he's clear that earthly fathers didn't always get it right. But God, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the heavenly father disciplines his children out of love for them and for their good. While earthly fathers will never, never be perfect in the way that that they discipline their children, they're nevertheless to recognise that discipline is of great importance um, and that they should repent where they fail to either administer discipline or fail to uh, administer it in love. 
and they should seek to imitate the care and motivation that guides the Heavenly Father in his discipline of his children. Now the second aspect Paul speaks of is that of instruction. It means the setting the setting of the mind through God-inspired warning or admonition. So instruction, warning, admonition, these words are all connected. The same word is used two other times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that the punishment that Israel experienced for their disobedience during Moses' time, verse 11, it happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So the failure of the Israelites was to serve as a warning, a lesson, an instruction to believers about the necessity of obedience. But the other place it's mentioned is in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, where Paul writes, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. So again, the warning or instruction is aimed at helping a person understand the consequences of the path that they're on in life. So when it comes to fathers, they are to instruct, they are to admonish, they are to warn their children to help them live in godliness. And of course, all this discipline and instruction is to be of the Lord, which means that it is never simply aimed at right behavior, but a right understanding of the gospel, of the grace and love of God that leads one into godliness. And here it also means that the Christian father is not on his own in the matter of raising his children right. He is strengthened and guided by the Holy Spirit within him through the scriptures and at the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of his children. And so the Holy sorry, the Spirit filled family is where children honour their parents and where fathers care for their children as God cares for his own. This is the result of the Spirit at work in the life of God's people. But it's a work that we participate in. And so may we be prayerful and diligent in striving for these things in our homes. By God's grace, he has revealed to us his divine design. And by his grace, he stirs us to this end. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, we thank you for what we have come to understand in this passage today. We pray that you would be with each one of us, uh, that the words of Scripture through the indwelling Holy Spirit would be illuminated into our hearts and minds, that we would be, be challenged, we'd be encouraged by this in the way that we seek to interact in our families. Father, we thank you for uh, the responsibilities that you have placed upon children and upon fathers in particular. We thank you of the honour that is to be given to our fathers and mothers. We thank you that the family structure itself is part of your sovereignty in the way that you have established it for our good. Father, we thank you most of all that fathers, we are not left in the dark as to how we are to act and to live but we recognize that you are the true father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name 
It is you who uh, not only provide the example of how to care for one's family, but you enable us by your grace, your mercy and your power to do that. Father, may our homes be places that have a deep desire to seek godliness and righteousness for the glory of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.